I can remember sitting in the office in New York, you know, and uh, suddenly everyone looked at me and said, do you reckon you can write 20 more Ruttle songs by next Thursday lunchtime? And I went, I'll try. But uh, I remember that sort of, I, I, I had about three months to write the songs and I knew I'd be sunk if I started listening to Beatles songs. And um, so I started writing from memory of where I was when certain songs came out, you know, because I was never kind of, I, I, I always liked their music and things like that, but I was at art school when kind of Love Me Do and things like that came out. And I was more interested in what I was doing. The Beatles song that really made me sit up and listen was in fact Penny Lane because I thought the lyrics were so good, the orchestration was so good, and I thought this is, this is taking popular music onto a totally different level. So, you know, the hardest ones for me to write were the sort of like the, the early sort of like hold my hand kind of things. And I sort of had to remember my, my days at a co-ed school, you know, sort of uh, looking at girls with kittens up their jumpers, you know. And, uh, but the, it was a lot easier to sort of write funny lyrics, you know, on the more psychedelic things like, you know, Piggy in the Middle. But anyway, that took three months and I had, um, you know, a couple of good ideas. Um, that first one was not, don't listen to any Beatles songs. And, and if I could play the song on a guitar or just on the piano, I knew the song worked. Welcome to this week's One Day with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Well, we did get a little bit of new news uh, on the Man on the Run documentary. Someone managed to sneak their phone in and film the 30-second presentation, which they showed when they announced the project. Can't wait. <laughs> well, from what they have shown, it's a lot of little clips of stuff that's in Wingspan, so... Let's just hope that they do actually come up with some new material when we do actually get it. But we do learn that the project is due in 2024, so it's at least a good year away. Right. And there'll be stuff between then and now. Oh, sure. You know, As they do the edit, I'm sure they'll come out with little teasers. And then probably maybe when it's Paul's birthday and the book comes out, we may even get a reasonable actual trailer i mean this doesn't count because first off we're not supposed to be seeing this 
Right. That's coming. There are things still coming in life. <laughs> All right. So our topic for this week, uh, we're going to talk about the Ruddles, but not the Ruddles film, although we should actually do another show on the Ruddles film. Uh, we, we've already done a couple, but, you know, that's a, kind of an evergreen in this world. In many ways, it's such a genius project that it holds up. But what we want to talk about is the music, particularly the first Ruddles soundtrack album. Right. Which in 2023 actually is the Ruddle soundtrack album plus about five or six songs that weren't on the album. Yeah, exactly. The The album itself was 14 songs and then six additional songs that were in the film were added to it when it came out on CD. One interesting thing, Neil Ennis talks about after they'd gotten the music together, they quote, sent the album to John Lennon to get his impression of it. And John's response was, well, there's one you got to watch out for. That's Get Up and Go. Get Up and Go wasn't on the original soundtrack album. So maybe they sent him the whole tape. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it was my understanding that that was the reason it wasn't put on was the iffiness of it. It was uh, Lennon told and it's, you know, Get Up and Go is too close to Get Back and to be careful not to be sued by ATV Music, who uh, owned the Beatles catalog at that time. And he, they got sued anyway. There is a postscript to that story, too. You know, it's always reported that they went to court. They never actually went to court. They just settled before anything happened. And so the settlement said that henceforth the songs on the LP version of the Ruddle soundtrack would all be credited to Lennon, McCartney, Ennis. Right, which <laughs> a story there is George apparently would attempt to get the rights back for Ennis, but it's not high on anyone's agenda, and so I've stopped sulking about it. <laughs> well, and you know that always comes up when they talk about uh, Oasis stealing from Neil for how sweet to be an idiot, right? And it's also kind of the arrogance of there's at least one song and probably two songs on the soundtrack that are really pastiches of George's material, which has nothing to do with ATV. Indeed, and then the post postscript to that the. Additional songs, the songs that were not on the original LP version of the album that are out on the CD, were not subject to this. So Get Up and Go is still credited as Neil Ennis only. Well, good, because that's a good one. <laughs> I can see bands playing that in a club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And have the audience go, wait a second. <laughs> as you pointed out, you know, when Paul is coming up with Get Back, he also comes up with Get Up and Go in the Get Back film when you see him, you know, just sort of yeah, playing around on his bass. Yeah, you know, because the, the melody goes da 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 but Paul sings da 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 which is the melody to Get Up and Go. So Get Up and Go is a version that, that McCartney rejected. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... Everyone knows about Neil and us, but let's talk a little bit about the four, well, actually five guys who were the Ruddles, the actual humans behind the characters. Neil and us first met George Harrison and the Beatles in 
1965. He was with the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. The very first single the, Beat, uh, the Bonzos recorded was called My Brother Makes the Noises for the Talkies, and that was recorded at Abbey Road. And, um, and yes, in the, if you can imagine a song like that, um, lots of sound effects were required, and it, there were no CDs of sound effects in those days, and you had to make them yourself. So we had hairbrushes and, so and things like that. And I, and I felt the call of nature, and I went out to find the restrooms, and in those days, Abbey Road had the front door and a corridor, and there was a studio off where we were, and there was other studios down there. I went down to some steps, and the restrooms were there. So I went to the restrooms, and on my way back, I was coming up the steps, and my head was about floor height, and the front doors were there. And all of a sudden, through the front doors, dramatically silhouetted by the sunlight outside in Abbey Road, were four guys with distinctive haircuts, dark glasses, trousers and pointy shoes, and two big miners, minders. And, um, and I thought, gosh, it's them. Of course, they record here too, don't they? And uh, it was, it was intriguing, you know, because uh, I thought after half an hour, I'd, I'd sneak out and see what they were up to. And I was able to listen through the door and I could hear quite well what they were doing. And they were doing one of George's songs, I Want to Tell You. And I, I didn't have a, and the grand piano in Studio Two there, down the steps, somebody was playing the E and the F, you know, da -na 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 -na. it's just so exciting, you know. And the riff, do 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 do, and, I, and it was, I don't know, it's a, it, it, I'd never heard anything quite like it. And of course, I had to go back into our studio and do. My brother makes the noises for the talkies, and, and I. I kind of thought, well, what are, I wonder what the guys are up to, <laughs> really. And um, well, actually, spool on, you know, uh, I was in George's kitchen um, talking about the same thing, you know, about that, that actual story. And uh, he, he said, oh, yeah, I remember. And, and he went, and just outside the kitchen, there's a little upright piano, and there was a guitar there. So I, I was doing the, we talked about the F over the E, and he picked up the guitar, and he immediately played the riff, do 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 which is not the sort of thing, you'd, you'd have to run it at least once, or I would, or twice, but he just did it straight away, so we just played it together on the thing. So, um, yeah, no, that was a great, great kind of moment. We know the Bonzos a little bit later as kind of this eccentric comedy band. But at that time, they were doing pop versions of, you know, 1920s and 30s tunes, jazz and folk. Right. And they were kind of goofy. It was very easy to go from what they were doing into what they did. And it's funny, the history of that band with the Beatles, they each had some contact. I believe it was John who got them into Magical Mystery Tour as the house band at the uh, strip club doing Death Cab for Cutie. And then, of course, in 68, Paul produced uh, I'm the Urban Spaceman for them. Apollo C. Vermouth. Yes. So they, they all had some contact. But George was, was Neil's best friend, which is kind of odd because uh, Neil really probably had the most contact with Paul because he was you know in tight with Mike. Right. The Bonzos hung out with the scaffold a lot. 
because they were similar bands in a way, comedy. And so they hung out. Although I would say Neil was probably much more of a musician than most comedians. You know, most comedians are the Adam Sandler style of musicians and, and Eric Idle as well. You know, they can maybe play a little guitar and they can sing a little bit, but they're not really musicians. Right. Before I knew all this, it made sense in a way that George would be the one, you know, I knew he was kind of tight with Eric Idle. I, Eric's working with Neil and George ended up in All You Need Is Cash. Eric and Neil and George would hang out a lot, although not together because Eric and Neil would post ruddles have their own little feud in life imitating art imitating life. You mean Ron Nasty and Dirk McQuickly fell out? They, they were not buddies for a good long while. Hmm. That's someone getting into the part. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, especially years after the fact. <laughs> but, I mean, the Ruddles wouldn't have worked without Neil's contribution. I mean, they needed what Eric provided as well, but you look at things like the fake Magical Mystery Tour, Eric's jokes are just kind of lazy and lame your mother should go right i am the waitress but you also have to realize that the the concept was eric's he did the rutland weekend television and the the ruddles was part of that so the initial concept was eric's the reporter concept was eric's the way i always heard that rutland weekend television was done was that Eric would write little comedy bits and Neil would write song parodies. And Neil would send his song parodies to Eric. And it's like, well, we'll find a way to fit these in. And and if you watch the original skit, the way that it was played out on Rutland Weekend Television, you can tell. Because, you know, it starts off as this uh, strange little documentary about the travails of love as a disease. And then it's like, all of a sudden it breaks into, I must be in love. But it was also Eric's appearance on Saturday Night Live, which brought Lorne Michaels to the special. The film we just saw is an amazing super group of the two great comic talents, Saturday Night Live meets Monty Python. Could you just talk about how the two groups, I mean, merged and how uh, that came to be? Well, it, it wasn't really intended. I mean, we made it, first of all, apart from the exception of Gary and, you know, Lorne's, you know, being the executive producer, um, we all went over to England and we had about five weeks to shoot this in, didn't we, in a, a mm. little mini budget. And then we got it back to New York. And I've, I've personally felt there was something missing. I felt we were missing performances because it was all very, it was great and we got it down, but there was no, nobody was acting in a sort of big way, you know. And so I wrote a scene for Belushi because I felt that we needed some meat and then we wrote something for Gilda and, and you know, Bill Murray. So, we, you know, we just we sort of padded it out. We, made it, we did some more shooting. And then we, we also wrote the scenes that went down to New Orleans, which was sort of added on again, trying to bring in these people, these different people, and do some funny stuff. Yeah, that's certainly where, where NBC's money comes into the picture. <laughs> right. Which they reference several times in the film. The Banks of the Mississippi, where we're here to demonstrate just how expensive it is to make one of these documentaries. A couple other little bits with George and Eric before we start talking about other things. Neil remembers hanging out with the Beach Boys and a bunch of other friends of theirs with George playing saxophone. And they went into a jam version of O Carol, which lasted 20 minutes. I just find that funny. First off, George could play the saxophone? I guess you just have to put your lips together and blow. <laughs> well, it, it reminds me of the, the Lennon quote, you know, uh, you can hand me a tuba and I'll find a way to make something come out of it. Right. 
Neil was also in a band called Grimm's for a while. One of the M's was Mike McGear. The S was Viv Stanshaw from the Bonzos. It was kind of the scaffold and the Bonzos together. Those albums are out there as well. And I think they're on uh, Apple Music as well, if you really want to go look for them. T-R-I-M-M-S. And when you say Apple Music, you mean the other Apple. The one that sponsored Rihanna on the Super Bowl. (laughs) Right. Post-Python, Eric did this show that we just mentioned, Rutland Weekend Television, Rutland being the smallest county in the UK. And so they get their own show. Whatever comedy they could do very quickly before the Ruttles. Whilst we're waiting, here's a piece of music. See how the good times roll. See how the good times roll. See how the good times roll away. Like ice in a drink, invisible ink, or dreams in the cold light of day. The children of rock and roll never grow old. They There were all his songs. Uh, Once again, proof that they didn't need to take that songwriting credit from him. And that had been part of his repertoire before the Ruddles was even a concept. Right. He was very good. I think probably the most famous thing was the fact that one of his songs ended up on a Beatles bootleg. He did Cheese and Onions live a couple of times. Once on SNL, when Eric hosted, they were doing a telethon to save Great Britain. And Neil came on with them as the only Ruddle living in New York. <laughs> and so he, he did Cheese and Onions. This one's especially for you, John. That's really a great version of that. Wow. Doing some promotion. He actually plays the songs closer to their original arrangement better than Lennon did. <laughs> yeah, you listen to the various versions of Imagine that John did. It's kind of almost nothing. Well, just a little bit like the record. Neil found a way to make Cheese and Onions sound like Cheese and Onions through all of these different performances of it. I bought the bootleg. Um, Indian Rope Trick. L.S. Bumblebee is is on that one as well. And I remember at the time thinking, really? Does anybody really think that that sounds like Lennon? I mean, you know, it's clearly an attempt to sound like him, but it doesn't really sound like John Lennon, nor does L.S. Bumblebee sound like Paul. Bootleggers, they didn't care. (laughs) 
we got space to fill up, dude. Either that or they were a little bit stoned and they <laughs> pulled out their tape recorder. And said, yeah, yeah, that's John Lennon. Yeah. <laughs> that may be the excuse for the entire Beatle industry. We were a little stoned. <laughs> we got a little high. And the next thing you know. The second brain behind the Ruddles was uh, Ollie Halsell and a name that we really don't know all that well, but we probably should know better. Uh, he's seen briefly in the film as uh, the Stu Sutcliffe character, Lepo. <laughs> right. Who couldn't play bass, but knew how to have a good time, which is much more important in Hamburg. <laughs> Ollie was apparently just a tremendous guitar player and singer. They wanted Ollie to play the Paul McCartney character. John Hawes used to be in a band called Pato, and they had an exceptional guitarist called Ollie Holsall who I used on my album, you know, and things like that. A staggering acrobat of a guitarist, a genius. And um, so I knew uh, that he'd be involved in the Ruttle thing. I've never heard anybody play a guitar like he played it. And I've never heard anybody before or since. He was a phenomenon. And he was an incredible musician, absolutely incredible. Ollie played guitar on the album and sung on the album, but slowly recorded it slower so that when they played at normal speed, his voice sounded higher. And that is the voice that Eric lip syncs to. And all his guitar playing is what Ricky mimes to. Oh, mimes, mimes. Finger mimes too. Right. Mm -hmm. But at one point, Ollie was going to be the Paul McCartney character. And what happened was there was a executive decision made, obviously in New York, by the production company that Eric should really play a bigger role in the film because he was the, you know, the guy they were going to sell it on. I was surprised to hear that he's quite influential in in the British guitar world. Alvin Lee, Andy Partridge. Not only Andy Partridge, but Dave Gregory. I mean, those are two of the best musicians around. And Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. Besides celebrities, imagine the thrill of just being part of the Ruddles production team. As a child, you know, growing up hearing them and being a huge Beatles fan. Obviously, she's confused. When we get into these songs, you can see he has studied George Harrison's guitar work. In order to get the bits the way he does, where it feels like George playing, it's like you have to know intensely in your heart how George Harrison's bits went. Right. He had a style, and he uh, replicates it very well. So Neil describes uh, Ollie as being uh, musically autistic in a way, and he tells a story about when he was a kid, his parents weren't that well off, and Ollie wanted a vibraphone. Which is an odd thing for a kid to want. So his parents said, prove to us that you know what you're doing and you can play it, and we'll find a way to, to get you one. And so what he did was he cut out the pieces of a vibraphone and just sort of started hitting the mallets on his bed, and, and he could hear the notes in his head, apparently. You know, it's kind of like the McCartney thing. Well, you know, I can hit stuff and hear notes in my head, but... 
they're not necessarily the right notes or what will <laughs> right. actually come out. But right. he played around with that for a while. And, he, you know, he eventually said he was ready. And his parents took him down to the music store. And he could play the thing. And so they had to buy him one. <laughs> right. He was kind of a savant. Could play all sorts of instruments, apparently. Ollie was originally going to be the Paul on screen in the Ruddles. And he also bears a you know a slight resemblance to him. You can see that they could have played around with his eyebrows and done a little bit with the makeup and, and maybe made him look a bit more like Paul. Right. But Eric needed a role. It was his project. Eric did want to be on the album, but he chose to have appendicitis. Eric was the one who had kind of gotten the funding and, and the folks in New York, Lauren Michaels and co said, well, we kind of need Eric to be doing something in this film a little bit more than just being the reporter at the beginning and the end and kind of wandering around throughout this film. So Eric became Dirk and he didn't even bother to mime the bass playing most of the time. You look at the clips, he's moving his fingers around the fretboard. He tries to, to mimic Paul's wide-eyed look sometimes, but he doesn't really mimic Paul in any other way. In places, the infamous bit that Paul is mad about, he's kind of got a little bit of Paul down with the, you know, let's write a song. Ending up with this cheery, jaunty little tune. Actually, when it came out, Paul had just released London Town. So when reporters asked him about it, he always answered no comment. Then Neil told a story about there was a dinner at some awards thing. He was at the same table as Eric, and Eric said it was a little frosty. Linda apparently loved it. Right. So he changed his, his mind. <laughs> Last 20 years, we've got a couple of photo ops which have had uh, Paul and... Dirk in the same photo. So Paul has apparently let bygones be bygones a little bit. And since we're talking about, you know, what the Beatles thought of it, Harrison said that, you know, the Ruddles sort of liberated me from the Beatles in a way. It was the only thing I saw of those Beatles television shows. It was actually the best, funniest, and most scathing. But at the same time, it was done with the most love. While it does hit a little bit hard on a couple points. One in particular we'll, we'll get to when we're going through the songs. It is clearly done with absolute love and respect for them. I think Rigo even uh, reacted to, he, he liked a lot of it, but thought that some of the, the sadder aspects of their career, you know, that was a little hard for him. Everything post-Lepo going off to a teaching position in Australia. Well, you know, the whole Ron decline and the stealing everything while George as, what was his name? Eric Manchester yeah, uh, is interviewing. There are, people are running out of the building with tapes and chairs and... A stuffed bear. <laughs> right. And then to finish that off, John Lennon, supposedly, they sent him a uh, preview copy and he just never returned it. Right. Yoko, when asked, did say, you know, we got it. You weren't actually calling me a Nazi. You were referring to the way that uh, the press reacted to me. <laughs> right. Ollie Halsell's band was Pato. I guess that's how you pronounce it. P-A-T-T-O. Pato. Before we leave Ollie completely, Ollie plays on Henry McCulloch's album on Dark Horse. You think George arranged that for him? His talent probably brought, got him the gig. 
yeah, I mean, it's just kind of funny. It's like, oh, wait a minute, you're a guitar player, and you're bringing in another guitar player? <laughs> well, maybe Henry didn't want to slide. <laughs> also in that band was John Halsey, Barry Wong. Yes. And John Halsey also has a fairly long and respected pre-Barry musical career. Uh, he plays on Lou Reed's Transformer. Strangely alone. And he played with Joe Cocker. Right. Which Henry McCulloch did too. You know, you get the impression that England may be a small country. <laughs> well, maybe so. And John Halsey was also on the, the Henry McCulloch album. They were all together. We were talking about second cousins of the Beatles. All of these guys were kind of first cousins. Through the Mike McGear connection. They were all in the circle. Well, with all the people playing on Henry McCulloch's album, maybe McCulloch is a ruddle. In some of those latter interviews, Neil very much wanted ruddle to become a verb in the English language, you know, to copy something with love. Everyone is a ruddle. Well, the Beatles were just ruddling Elvis and Buddy Holly. <laughs> it's kind of a plastic Ono concept. Everybody's a ruddle. Maybe we should get that going as a movement again. Right. If that word were to be in the dictionary as a verb, that would make my day. You know, to ruttle, to rootle, pronounce ruttle. <laughs> verb intransitive, is it? I don't know. But to copy or emulate brackets, it's, someone you admire brackets, especially in the music business, you know, it means that everybody's a ruttle because the Beatles were ruttling, you know, Eddie Cochran and, and Gene Vincent and Elvis. Mozart ruttled whoever played the harpsichord. <laughs> Is it we are a species of ruttles? <laughs> you know, and uh, so what is the harmony? And in this way, you know, the ruttles become the biggest band in the world. <laughs> That's pretty great. For those people who are listening who haven't heard this material, it's really, really good. There's actually three official Ruddles albums. The last one, the Weed album being actually sort of their version of Anthology, it's, it is just kind of the raw demos uh, with one new song. And then despite being named after Anthology, uh, their middle album is an album of pretty much you know brand new material. The story there is Neil went to George Harrison and said, well, you know, I've got these demos. I kind of want to do another Ruddles album. And he played them for George. And George's response was, wait a minute, this is all your music. You don't need to ask my permission. I can see that because we're going to talk about this album, the first one. And you can see where they were replicating certain Beatles songs in a way and, and almost getting to the edge of being Lennon McCartney tunes. But the second album, it's much harder to go. Well, that's that song. A lot of it is in the production. Right. It is Beatlesque because they make it sound Beatlesque, not necessarily because the tunes are such. I've many times said that Archaeology was the, the best album the Beatles never made. You know, it's just, it's really, really good. Before we leave John Halsey here, he also has his fans. No less than Phil Collins has said that John Halsey was a drummer that he really listened to and that he took some influence from. England is a small island because that same guy, that Phil Collins guy, he was in A Hard Day's Night. The other main member of the Ruddles, Ricky Fatar, who's still in the music business. Yes. And I knew of Ricky before the Ruddles, being a Beach Boys fan, I was aware of the Flames, who were signed to the Beach Boys record label. And then after the Flames broke up, Ricky and 
Blondie Chapin, I believe, joined the Beach Boys. And in fact, Blondie is the lead vocalist on Ceylon Sailor, big hit for them. So I, I was aware of him. And so when the Ruddles came out, I was like, oh, look at that. I know that guy. Well, and if you listen to the records from the Flames, they did a couple of Indian-styled numbers. Yes. Nevertheless, um, the Ruddles album is not the first time that Ricky dove into that. And so, I mean, he actually did know how to play most of those instruments, and, and he played the sitar on the Ruddles album. For those who don't know, that band is from South Africa. It was Ricky and his brothers originally. The Flames had been formed in the early 60s. The lead guitarist, Blondie Chaplin, had been in it since he was 13 years old. Ricky Fatar, the drummer, had joined his brothers in the band when he was only nine years old. Ricky was voted the best rock drummer in South Africa. Out of the five of them. That is why you have Ollie playing much of the guitar on this album. While Ricky could play guitar, he was not primarily a guitar player. He was primarily a drummer and is still primarily a drummer because that's what he's doing for Bonnie Raitt. Who just won a Grammy. In fact, the last time they came through, oh, I guess it was about four years ago, it was Bonnie Raitt and James Taylor. But I went and bought tickets because I wanted to see Ricky. And how was he? He's the drummer. <laughs> but but he, he was he was very, very natally attired. And, you know, he got the biggest cheer from me. That's great. There were a couple of people who were cheering from him. So probably a couple of Ruddles fans. But most of the people were looking at, why are you cheering for the drummer? It's like, never mind. Wouldn't it be great if he ended up in the all-star band and they did some Ruddles tunes? That would be great. I'd love to hear Ringo singing Living in Hope. That would be great. <laughs> While not doing Ringo, John Halsey can very much put on a voice which is reminiscent of Ringo. Yes. Kind of slow, kind of sad, kind of loping, but it works. It's even more subtle than that. Ringo, when he sings, sometimes slightly overshoots a note. Um it's just part of the way he sings, and he has that down cold. He really does Ringo very well. And beyond that, you got Andy Brown, which, well, we really don't know that much about other than, well, he was the bass player on the original Ruddles album. I couldn't find that much about him, but he was around, and he was apparently just a studio musician at the time. And then their producer, Steve James, received a Grammy nomination for the soundtrack. He didn't win, but it's, that's still very cool. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that. So the deal with the soundtrack was once they had the final mix, they all decided this sounds too good. So they, they ran it through the compressor twice. <laughs> and after the second time through the compressor, it's like, okay, this sounds about like what I would expect it to sound like, what I what I want it to sound like. That's funny. Steve James is still with us. I would kind of like to see him go back and do a remix, do do a Giles Martin style remix. And, oh and in the fiction, you could even do that. You know, <laughs> there's not much sillier name than Giles. So maybe Giles McCall. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Giles. I mean, you have to admit it's kind of a silly name. You don't like Giles? If you were to pick a Ruddles name for Archie McCaw's son, Giles <laughs> is as good as any other. I guess. Yeah. I kind of would like to see them go back and remix this. And since they do have pristine recordings, well, hopefully, hopefully the multi tracks haven't been destroyed. But you know, one of the reasons why I think uh, having 
these remixes done is because we have studied the music so much that the slight alterations of things where you hear things better, you know, we know that. I don't know that I would really pick up on anything anybody could do <laughs> with with the Ruddle stuff. Maybe. Uh, all right. So into the record, since we're talking about remixes, remasters, and how things change through the years, the original Ruddles album started with a back in the USSR joke. You hear whirring, which your brain sort of clicks in. It's like, oh, they're parodying the airplane landing in back in the USSR to start the album. It turns out it is the vacuum cleaner in the studio. <laughs> That bit is now completely gone. It is nowhere to be found. Right. Because they used the airplane on archaeology. The album starts with Goose Mama, which was not on the original LP. I think we can say that is pretty solidly like uh, a some other guy. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, Goose Step Mama, of course, is a subtle reference to playing the Reaper Bond and the habit of letting screaming out nazis to the german audience play goose step mama and the thing i like about the recording is it's typical of of the beatles recordings at that time in that sometimes dirk's harmony is a little over enthusiastic the deal with that was once they decided that a band was going to record the music that they weren't just going to try and, you know, bring in a bunch of session guys to do this thing. They actually did a couple of weeks of rehearsals uh, and Neil frequently remembers that Wimbledon was on at the time. So, <laughs> so they, they would go ruddle for a while and then watch the Wimbledon, then ruddle for a while again. <laughs> it's like you could do that uh, for the Super Bowl. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> anyway, they went and recorded everything on two track tape. And apparently that is where this version came from, was from those, those rehearsal sessions. Yeah, you wouldn't want to polish it at all. And it works great as an opening. It, it's too bad it didn't open the original album. It really puts you in the mood. I love the lyrics. While you tinker with some tailor, someone sold you to a sailor. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. Every song has at least something brilliant in the lyrics, showing you just how good Neil was. Yeah, counting down in German. I, I, you've got nothing to eins, zwei, vier. No, no, it's fear. Uh, the German word for four, eins, drei, five, vier. And fear, of course, you've got nothing to fear. <laughs> well, there you go. Okay, the the second song is is number one, which is, more or less twist and shout, but yeah. not exactly. A lot of these, you could go, well, that's like twist and shout. But there's also little things in there that are Beatlesque, but you can't go, well, that's that song. Number one, number one. That, and the, that's really the twist and shout riff. Well, and, and then the, uh, you know. Right. The guitar part is suspiciously like Hearts Crazy on You.
Let's see, was that out by that time? <laughs> They're contemporaries, no doubt. I couldn't tell you exactly. But listen. Yeah. yeah. If not exactly the same, it's pretty close. Right. Although there was a Trini Lopez song. That that's always reminded me of. And one thing I really like about you know what Neil did when he was writing this song, he didn't just sort of go and rewrite one. There is no Hey Jude on uh, on this set of recordings. He right. very much is sort of going by the feel of this is what this period of the Beatles felt like. The initial thing was particularly when he was having discussions with ATV, that he didn't sit down and listen to Beatles songs and then try to recreate it. He initially said it was all from memory of what things were like. His favorite story is Hold My Hand came because he wanted to write a song about you know the first time that he, he managed to get under a girl's bra. <laughs> That's where that came from. It was... Afterwards, when they were actually making the record, that they went and listened to the Beatles stuff. Right. To get the instrumentation and the production absolutely correct. Yeah. So, all right, Baby Let Me Be. I guess it's kind of a, a Meet the Beatles kind of song. Uh, it's a nice little rocker. It is. Uh, and I've kind of put down some other guy. It's that vibe. Yeah, but not so much some other guy. It's kind of their interpretation of it. Whereas, you know, yeah. Goose Step Mama was more kind of straight borrowed from some other guy in feel you know by here we're like you say it's it's more almost kind of a with the beatles where they are taking motown and sort of starting to incorporate that into their songwriting well this is where we get to the genius of neil innes because you know you're going to hear different things i mean i can tell just by talking to you that you hear things that i don't hear in it and vice versa so you know it's kind of like to me, it's earlier than Meet the Beatles. It, it is an early Beatles Hamburg kind of thing. Okay, so um, you, you think it's still more or less a like the radio shows, for example? Yes. It's something the Ruddles would have done on the radio. This is a BBC take. And one of the things they did was real clever. You know, they expanded what the Ruddles were because later on they put out a CD single, I guess, that did this song under the title baby s'il vous plaît and the story behind it was that the ruddles cut this not really realizing that the germans didn't speak french and if you translate the lyrics they are pretty dirty yeah <laughs> right can we play hide my sausage <laughs> it was clever that they kind of expanded that they also put out a single from dirk and stig a Gingangooly. Uh, Gingangooly. And Mr. Sheen, I think it was called, or something, Mr. Sheen. They continued the joke in other ways. And this one was particularly clever to record this song in, in French. Here we come to the first big hit, the Ruddles on the Ed Sullivan show, Hold My Hand, which is just a whole pastiche full of uh, pronoun songs rolled into one. Yeah. I mean, the opening is, is like eight days a week. Probably the single most used bit in the instrumentation is All My Loving. The triplets. And then you got a little bit at the end there, which is kind of borrowed from All My Loving. 
Yeah. And they use yeah, yeah as part of the hook. Please, please hold my hand. Yeah, yeah. Hold my hand. Yeah, yeah. They say that Neil does a good John Lennon. It's okay. But this sounds like John Lennon. Yeah, this is, this is real good. He, he's got it down. Next up is Blue Suede Schubert, which is a great pun. Yeah, right. And this would be a George song. Probably roll over Beethoven. Yeah, although the backing vocals are like boys. They call me Blue Suede Schubert. He puts more than one song in this. There's a subset which are very definitely parodies or mostly parodies of one song with just little bits stuck in from other places. And then there's the other set off of this disc, original songs that he just throws in enough to make it work. And this is a song that they left off the album. All right. Then we go into I Must Be In Love. And there are two versions of it. There's the Rutland Weekend television version. And then there's the version in the film. So I had this song, which is basically a list. You know, I feel good, I feel bad, happy, sad. Well, that'll do. I wasn't even thinking, this is the Ruttles, you know. I mean, as far as Rutland Weekend Television was concerned, it was a, a spoof of Hard Day's Night. The version in the film could have been a hit in 1964. It's just a perfect encapsulation of Mercy Beat. And it's not any one specific Beatles song. The riff is Ticket to Ride-ish, although... I think uh, one website says to them it sounded like a hard day's night. There's bongos all through it, which is very much you lose that girl. And at the end, when they're playing the riff, the drums move to the rhythm that Ringo used in Ticket to Ride. It's a lot of little pieces put together. Right. The brilliance of Neil Innes. Then we go to With a Girl Like You, which is the doe-eyed McCartney. <laughs> right. And, you know... With Lennon talking about get up and go, I would say, you know, this is so close to If I Fell. I mean, it's it's done so well. Harmonies. Presented as being at the Royal Variety Show, I kind of got the taste of honey thing from it. <laughs> well, that's because of the doe-eyed. Well, that's true. But there's, you know, slight aspects of that in the music, too, I think. I can see that. The lead is reminiscent of... Peter and Gordon's World Without Love. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the fact that it's a 12 string and the underlying piano. It's the thing we're talking about. They're moving through the Beatles catalog. Yes. The Ruddles music is evolving in the same way that the Beatles music evolved. And it gets better and better. <laughs> then Between Us. Between Us, which was not on the album. I heard it as I Need You, kind of. A little bit. Wikipedia puts it as, as, as a little bit of a, I'll follow the song or I'll be back. I can hear I'll be back just a little bit. Yeah. More in the guitar than anything else. That's a lot of fun. Then Living in Hope, the Ringo slash Barry Wom song. Yes. And it's so perfect. It really is. And then this puts in a thing in there that doesn't make it Don't Pass Me By. By the guitar work is like what George did with uh, What Goes On. And it's ever so slightly act naturally. Right. You know, and maybe that's just kind of the rock feel that they put into it rather than, than leaving it straight country. 
Yeah. Then Ouch, which is, you know, obviously the Help parody. Although there's all sorts of really fun things going on in there. Yes. And I I appreciated the line about upsetting the apple cart. We're kind of getting into the point where it's more sort of, let's parody one song in particular, and then we'll add other things to it. Although, although again, there's still a couple of them which are pretty different. There's a story about Ouch. And there was one magic day I was at George's house, and Ringo was there. And George, he picks up a guitar, and George and Ringo both sang to Neil and I help. I mean, you no, know, he's saying, ouch, ouch, ouch. Uh, <laughs> and we're going, they learned it. Oh, he must have been this so, is so thrilled. This is the world turned upside down. That's so great. I'm sure they loved, they must have loved it. They sort of did. So it was two Beatles singing Ruddle songs, two of the Ruddles. <laughs> then It's Looking Good, which is very definitely a rubber soul style song. And again, I put it earlier than that. So Okay. Beatles for sale or Ruddles for sale? I said it was um, I'll Cry Instead. I could see that. It's the lope of it, the guitar. It's just, there's. it's similar to that. Lyrically, it's got nothing to do with it. But, but we're going to turn a corner here in a second. In the film, they're playing this at Shea Stadium, named after Gorilla Leader, Shea Stadium. What I like about the Shea Stadium version, they're playing, they're playing, they're playing, and then it ends with, can you hear me? And it's like, no one could hear us. <laughs> right. I did say that the, you know, the again the the drum stutter at the end sounds like ticket. We turn the corner. We are now into mid period Ruddles. We're talking about Sergeant Rudder, Double Back Alley, which is clearly Penny Lane, no doubt about that one. One of the things I always liked about it was you know in Penny Lane, there's the reference to Finger Pie, and in this, you know, I flogged my memory. You know, uh, flogging is a... <laughs> well, okay, so and the, the other naughty references, like I say, to, to Sacker and Sally in there. Right. There's so. also a lot about um, stinking of gin and grinning a grin, which is from Rocky Raccoon. Not to mention the uh, line about the funny man in the ice cream van who talks so queer. Yeah, yes. I mean, that's something that the Beatles would have loved to have gotten away with, you know? <laughs> Again, that's one of the great parts about listening to the Ruddles is because you start getting into lyrics that are just so perfect. References in it and uh, just the the use of the lyric. He does a great job on this. And then that's followed by Good Times Roll, which is uh, <laughs> their Lucy in the Sky. Right. The most ridiculous psychedelia, but... If you're stoned, it probably makes some sense. Like ice in a drink, invisible ink, or dreams in the cold light of day. Right. It does what Lucy does in that the verses are in one meter, and then there's the doom, doom, and it changes in the chorus. It's, it's real cool. And that's followed by uh, Nevertheless, which is their Indian song. Uh, if I had to pick one, I'd say it's probably most like Love You Too. It's more sort of pre-within-you-without-you style George writing. It doesn't have a George Martin's orchestration, but it totally encapsulates George's philosophy in a way. Nevertheless, make the most of it. In this <laughs> day and age, love is all the rage. Life goes on, it only goes to show. It's not my cup of tea. When tea was LSD. Yeah, right. It's all the same to me. 
for We Are Here Today and Gone Tomorrow. I mean, that sounds like a George lyric. We are here today and gone tomorrow. Nevertheless, make the most of yeah. it. Having Ricky Vitar do this is just so perfect. And I mean, a lot of people appreciate it because it's a minute and a half and it's like, oh, well, okay. I can see why you have to have one. And if you have to have one, at least make it short. <laughs> uh, I guess. It's got backward guitar in it. And- And and sitars and tablas and, you know, it's an Indian set record. Then that is followed by uh, Love Life, which is their version of All You Need Is Love, which is the only track on here that George thought they were being a little bit harsh with him. Harsh with John? With George. Oh, because of the guitar lead? Much like All You Need Is Love, it just kind of has that uh, guitar solo, which follows the lead line and just kind of peters out. It doesn't really peter out to me. I mean, what happens is he hits a chord that is not really the chord that would be what you expect. That's the way this the guitar lead is. It's kind of goofy. George Harrison is noted as saying that's the only thing where he thought that they were punching a little bit too hard. A little heavy handed. A little heavy handed. taking the mickey a little too much here (laughs) but i mean otherwise again it's great yeah where there's a will there's a way ending the song with hold my hand the orchestra playing are they actually playing some other song i was listening to see if something hit me and i could not tell it it may be just generic enough it's not green sleeves or something like that but and maybe they weren't going to do anything because they might have to pay a copyright to somebody already in deep enough trouble so right the song and this video have become so conflated with the real thing it's it's just (laughs) funny i mean for years people were saying oh yeah of course there's a color version of the all you need is love clip (laughs) you know it's like No, it was done in black and white. I had so many people tell me when the colorized version came out on Anthology, oh yeah, you know, I've seen that before. No, it hasn't existed until now. Right. And they were almost universally thinking of the Love Life clip. He's got the whole Lennon timing thing in there. It'll drop a beat or it's really well done. I think surely you had to have listened to All You Love before you did that one. Well, afterwards. Right. It's like he says, he wrote it, and then when they went to actually record and then do the production on it, it's like, okay, we got to do this. Delay just a second there. All right. Neil Ennis playing in Tragical History Tour. Also, he was in the real Magical Mystery Tour. We What we get here is Piggy in the middle. Right. It's definitely I Am the Walrus. And in perfect Beatles fashion, there was a verse which they recorded, which... <laughs> was, even at the time, borderline racist, so they cut it out. Really? Oh, you didn't know that? No. Come on, Ed, be racist on us. <laughs> Let me pull it up. The deleted lyrics were about civilizing jungle bunnies. Right. Right before that one-man civilization. So it's like, yeah, okay. 
they decided not to use it. It's a very Beatles thing. And <laughs> while, while not intentional, I, I just, I find that kind of funny. Right. The other thing about Piggy in the Middle is there's the reference to Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Something that John Lennon would bring into his own. John, home demo of Serve Yourself. Right. Well, you may believe in Mickey Mouse or even Donald Duck, but who the hell you turn to when you really need a, well, gee, did he borrow that from Neil? <laughs> I know you know what you know, but you should know by now that you're not me. More wonderful, nonsense, Lewis Carroll-esque lyrics. Bible-punching heavyweight, evangelistic boxing kangaroo, orangutan and anaconda. And if those were the real lyrics, we'd probably be looking for meaning in them. <laughs> I also appreciated the fact that in coming up with those lyrics, when he sings evangelistic boxing kangaroo, I mean, the way he does that vowel sound is John Lennon. Neil cannot necessarily do either the hard-rocking Lennon voice or the soft Julia-style Lennon voice, but in the middle, he can get the inflections just right. This is followed by uh, Another Day, not the McCartney Another Day, although you have to wonder whether Neil didn't quite think about that when he was writing the song. Right, although, you know, that is kind of the parody of it. That's a McCartney phrase. The lyrics of this are so great. Pusillanimous. Pusillanimous. It is an adjective. Basically, pusillanimous means lacking courage, fearful. You're so pusillanimous. Oh, yeah. Nature's calling, and I must go there. Wow. That takes some guts to do that. And it's also right. very, very funny. And it's the perfect McCartney not quite knowing where he's going, but I'm going to throw in an erudite reference. A glass of wine with Gertrude Stein I know I'll never share. It doesn't <laughs> quite sound right, but it does sound right. It's kind of Martha, my dear, I guess. That's what I wrote down. It's very definitely a wide album Ruddles track. It's that piano style that McCartney played on Martha, my dear. which is a slightly solo Lennon, at least in vocal style. Right. I wrote down Cheese and Onions. It's a great parody, but of what? The most brilliant thing is at the very end, it's the day in the life. The piano, which goes on, it's just a single note. Cut really quick. Don't. There's certainly some of a day in the life in this, but it's not really. What it goes, dun, 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 dun. In the, in the piano at the uh, as it goes into the verse, that's definitely a day in the life, and it ends that way. So that's clearly the model. I mean, what Neil has said was that this was meant to be the Yellow Submarine film song, and it's like, 
okay, I can get that. So, you know, maybe, maybe it's kind of all too much or he wasn't necessarily thinking of any one particular song. I mean, it's a feel more than anything else. It's the Lennon style piano. As mentioned, he was playing it live and it had existed both before and after the Ruddles project. So, okay, maybe it was only sort of meant to be a Beatles parody, but they certainly do a good job of shoehorning it in to the Yellow Submarine soundtrack style, and it works perfectly in the movie. Then get up and go. I'll have to agree with John. That one is a little bit too close. Get up and go. Not appearing in this film. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's really really close to get back. That's for sure. It's the same drums. It's the same guitar. The only thing that's not there is the Billy Preston. Although there is a little bit of uh, keyboards on there, and it does have another great lyric: "Cruising down the highway doing sixty-five. Only sixty-five. Cruising down the highway doing sixty-five in the middle of the double white line. Step down on the gas. His head in the clouds. He didn't see the one-way sign. That's brilliant." <laughs> I'm just thinking, is 65 in Britain pretty damn fast? A couple of years later, you got Paul McCartney going 38. <laughs> and that was slow, so, you know. <laughs> At this point, I don't know what the highway system looked like in England, so uh, yeah. maybe, maybe not. It was probably a reference to the American speed limit, but even the American speed limit wasn't 65 at that point. When did 55 come in? During the oil crisis, 74 maybe. Was it that early? Okay, I thought it was the Carter administration, not the Ford administration. Either way, I mean, it's a, yeah. it would have been a relatively new thing, and it may well have been just something that was in the headlines. The number may have just been in the headlines. Those silly Americans that are putting up a speed limit. The last song on the soundtrack. Before we get to that, this last song, Get Up and Go, of course, was not on the soundtrack. So the way this album ended was you had cheese and onions and then you have let's be natural and so it had a a certain uh meditative zone out kind of feel get up and go being put there kind of changes the way it felt i'm just mentioning that (laughs) all right it ends with let's be natural which is uh a lot of songs, uh, Dear Prudence is the one that is yeah. most commonly referred to with this. I agree with it's Dear Prudence, and it, it kind of espouses the Maharishi philosophy. So you think so. it's more a wide album song than kind of a, an Abbey Road, a Shabby Road kind of song? Yeah, it wouldn't fit on that album. So, okay, so what we don't have is we don't really have an, an Abbey Road-style parody. Not really. That'll come in the next album. Really, if you were to do this correctly, <laughs> Get Up and Go would have been the last song of the album. If we take everything from Please Please Me to Help, you know, that is covered in general. Then we, we kind of got a Rubber Soul song. Nevertheless, serves as the Revolver song. You got some Pepper stuff. Good Times Roll, which is the, the Pepper song. And then a couple of White Album songs, a couple of Magical Mystery Tour songs. Every album other than Abbey Road from the late period is is pretty much covered. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun. This whole record is just a lot of fun. It really is. The reason there could even be a a second record is because this is so good. So if you haven't heard it, definitely should. The whole thing is on YouTube. Uh, You can go and pull it. You can listen to it on Apple Music or Spotify or wherever you 
are cool. yeah i think we'll cover the other album and probably uh utopia is to face the music somewhere along the line here because i mean can you think of any other act that ever kind of attempted to do a straight beginning to end beatles pastiche i mean you know everyone kind of does these one-offs you know a song yeah. or a couple of songs deface the music and even todd is not he does a couple but he he sort of peters out along the way as well i think in todd's work there wasn't a a religiosity <laughs> In, in holding to that concept, he has some songs that were Beatlesque, and that particular version of Utopia could lend itself to that because they put out another album that was kind of Beatlesque. They did a Penny Lane song. They very definitely did an Eleanor Rigby song. What is it? I don't want to face it. Is it was their sort of early Beatles? Please, please me. Want to hold your hand? Type song. That album probably has about six good Beatles type songs and the others aren't so much but i mean i can't think of any other record that kind of attempted this oh i have to think about that well if you know of any other records that have attempted this let us know please all right because we're lost (laughs) all right so we will be back next week with a new show right and yes The children of rock and roll never grow old. They just fade away. Just fade away. Boy, don't I know that. (laughs) All right. Y'all take care. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beast or Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. put something in his book, I Mean Mine, and um, it sums it all up, really. Uh, so what should have happened was that the Beatles and the Bonzos and the Ruttles and the Pythons should have all got together and had a really great time. And he, he acknowledged, you know, pinching a joke of mine, you know, for the front of the book, he said, I've suffered from my music, now it's your turn. But uh, he, did, he did credit me at the end of the book, and Eric, you know, for the use of their terrible old jokes. <laughs> it's been amazing, actually, that it's still, people are still interested in it, but then again, the Beatles' popularity has never really diminished. The songs live on forever. Um, and it's all sort of part of it, really, the rattles it. Neil said once that when we did these Beatles festivals in America that the nearest the public will ever get to a Beatle at these Beatles festivals is a ruttle. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.